One of the most notorious cases in California history is a case called the Grim Sleeper. We've got a guy that's been murdering young ladies, young black women in South Central Los Angeles from 1985, and he's back. And because I was afraid that he would be trolling for other women and possibly killing other women. We've got three connected cases, two agencies involved, and that's got RHD written all over it. We will start a familial searching program. We will search on convicted offenders, but we will not search on arrestees, right? Because they are not convicted offenders. And every time Lonnie would discard a, a fork, a napkin, a piece of pizza, or whatever, our guy was there to collect it. Some of his victims were in dumpsters in the area of his route and uh, they probably ended up in landfills. So we may never know exactly how many he was uh, responsible for. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Welcome to Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this podcast will take listeners both behind the scenes and inside the crimes and the investigations and prosecutions of some of the most notorious and high-profile criminal cases in California history. It doesn't just take us behind the scenes, it'll also examine the innovative tools and techniques used to not only solve crime, but it actually came out of crime. One of the most notorious cases in California history is a case called the Grim Sleeper. It involves the prosecution and the investigation of an individual by the name of Lonnie Franklin. Today, we'll, we will be telling the inside stories of this case with retired Los Angeles police detectives, Dennis Kilcoyne and Paul Coulter, as well as Jill Spriggs, who is the former Department of Justice Crime Lab Director. All of these three individuals worked on this case. Before I introduce each of them, I wanna give you a little bit of background about how I know all of them. First of all, I've known Jill for probably 25 years. I met Jill in 1996 when she was a DNA criminalist here in Sacramento and I was a young prosecutor uh, working on DNA cases in Sacramento. Jill has, uh, Jill and I have been involved in many cases. Uh, we've worked on many DNA related projects. Jill has testified in many cases that I actually myself prosecuted as well as many others. And Jill and I worked uh, for probably over 10 years teaching in a class here in, in California called Cold Case Investigations. Dennis and Paul, I probably met well over 15 years ago. My memory serves me right. We met through teaching of law enforcement throughout the state of California. We were involved in such things as homicide teaching, advanced homicide, cold cases, and we've also been at many conferences throughout the United States. So let me start off with Jill. Jill, can you just tell us all a little bit about your background and um, just let us know kind of what your career path has been? Okay. Um, I started out my career path actually doing uh, drug cases, um, analyzing different types of drugs, then moved into DNA, where I have worked on many, many, many cases. I've been a technical leader for several California Department of Justice crime labs, as well as the Sacramento County District Attorney Lab. Uh, I also um, have been a supervisor in the DNA sections, been a lab director, 
and also been a bureau chief overseeing all of the 13 California DOJ labs under the attorney general's office. My specialty is DNA. Um, have many years of experience in DNA, testified in Kelly Fry hearings, and worked on many cold cases to help solve the cold cases. Awesome. All right, let me move to you, Dennis. Why don't you tell us a little about your experience? Well, I started with the Los Angeles Police Department in uh, 1977, and uh, I first went to homicide in the Hollywood division, and I worked... Uh, homicide cases from probably the, the mid 1980s until the end of my career in 2013. And uh, so I spent 30 years working homicide. I did the first 10 years in Hollywood homicide and then moved to uh, robbery homicide division at our headquarters building downtown LA. And that division is made up of detectives uh, from all over the city and a specific uh, challenge for the detectives assigned there are to work on cases that are high profile, uh, media driven, um, or basically anything else, any other type of investigation that uh, the chief of police deems uh, the resources of robbery homicide division to, to uh, investigate. The resources at that particular division far exceed the divisional uh, homicide units. And that's why uh, cases such as uh, high media, high profile, celebrity type cases go to that division. Excellent. I, and if my memory serves correctly, we've taught a lot of homicide classes together and you and Paul have been involved in that even up until recently, correct? Yes, Paul and I, uh, the state of California has, uh, through the Department of Justice, has what they call post uh, classes. and. Uh, Police officers in the state of California are required to have X number of hours every year of training to keep up their certification. And I believe that's uh, the case with most states around the country. But it keeps uh, officers, you know, up to date with upcoming uh, scientific advances, legal advances, and uh, just general knowledge of what's going on with uh, society in, in that particular time. Excellent. All right, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Well, I, like Dennis, joined the LAPD in 1977. And uh, after doing my time in patrol and undercover, I went to homicide in uh, 1989, where my first uh, homicide case was the murder of actress Rebecca Schaefer, which was a high profile case and changed a lot of laws regarding stalking and DMV uh, privacy laws and things like that. Um, I worked the Wilshire Homicide Unit, um, which is the mid-city area of downtown of LA, for ten years before going down to Robbery Homicide Division in 1998. And while there, uh, we would, like Dennis says, do the high-profile cases or the murders of police officers, um, both on duty and off duty. Uh, I was able to work on the cases uh, involving the Southside Slayer, which was Michael Hughes, uh, that was convicted for eight uh, murders of females in South Central L.A. before getting into uh, the Grim Sleeper case in 2007. I was also involved in the uh, 
murder of Susan Berman, which just resulted in the conviction of Robert Durst yesterday, as a matter of fact. So, so that's it. And I retired in 2012. So 24 years working homicides and death investigations. Excellent. All right. So you mentioned, Paul, the, the Grim Sleeper case, and that's really kind of what we're here to talk about today. And really some of the innovative things that were done in that case, not only to help solve it, but that kind of came out of that case. So before we kind of get into the innovative tools that were used, if we, if maybe Paul and Dennis, if you can kind of tell the listeners, you know, what, what is the Grim Sleeper case about? A murder occurred on January 1st, 2007 of uh, Janisha Peters in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, it was handled initially by 77th Division detectives and then uh, along about, and it continued to be uh, investigated by them for several months. And then along about May of 2007, uh, our lab made a connection, case-to-case -case connection with uh, Janisha Peters' case and two other cases. And uh, that caused um, the information to be run up the flagpole to all the way to the chief's office, actually. And uh, it was thought that now that we have a connection to uh, a case in 2002, a case in 2003, handled by another agency, and uh, the Janisha Peters case in 2007, we've got three connected cases, two agencies involved, and that's got RHD written all over it. So it ended up coming to our division. Uh, I was asked to put together a task force, and uh, the first person I reached out to was Paul, and because uh, we had worked together for so many years. And we put together a task force that consisted of uh, eight detectives, a crime analyst, and basically our own representative uh, at our LAPD crime lab. And we, um, we began our investigation into these particular three cases. Quite early on, we made a connection with uh, a number of cases that had occurred from 1985 to 1988. And uh, now that we had, we were in the DNA world, which didn't exist in the 1980s, we were making, we made the leap to this series of cases into the, into the 80s, connecting to the cases, the current cases at that time in the 2000s. And now we had quite a challenge on our hands because we were looking at uh, about a dozen murder cases, an attempted murder, and uh, and, but we were also researching, uh, you know, close to 50, 60 other cases that had occurred in that time frame in the city of Los Angeles. Um, Paul and Dennis, is it, is it a fair statement that, that these crimes occurred beginning around 1985 or 1984 and going all the way to 2007? That's correct. And that's, uh, we learned that within the first several months of our investigation in, uh, into the task force investigation. And uh, then we, we decided along and the chief chief of police at the time, uh, Bill Bratton is he's on top of this thing the whole, the whole time. And it's it, his direction that a task force was set up in the first place. And the, uh, so now we've got quite a challenge. We've got a guy that's been murdering young ladies, young black women, in South Central Los Angeles from 1985, and he's back. 
in, in the early 2000s, all the way to 2007 of Janisha Peters. And um, we've got a gap from 88 to 2002 initially that we don't know what's going on. So we, we are flying under the radar, um, not going public with this information purposely because we don't want to chase him off. And we, we need to learn these cases and find out how many cases we're dealing with. Like I said, we're, we're uh, researching and we're biopsying, uh, you know, just dozens upon dozens of cases, probably just under 100 cases that occurred in the city of Los Angeles and, uh, at that time, in that time frame. And we come up with initially uh, about a dozen, 12, 13 cases that we're looking at. One was a man. Uh, initially that uh, had a firearms comparison that, uh, you know, initially we th it was thought that there was a connection to the, the firearm that was being used um, because that was one of the links in the 80s where DNA did not exist. The caliber and uh, make and model of the particular firearm that was used from 1985 to 1988, he was using the same gun. Uh, the gun had ch uh, changed in the 2000 cases, but now that we were in the DNA world, we linked cases from DN with DNA from the 2000s back into the 80s series because, again, DNA didn't exist back then. And But we had physical evidence that was uh, used for DNA testing retesting from the 1980 series and uh, we were making the leap through dna um even though he had changed firearms paul if i can ask you real quick and you tell me if i'm missing something here but uh kind of two questions the first one really is why why was he dubbed the grim sleeper and and you know who, who dubbed him the grim sleeper well, that was a, a writer for the LA Weekly, Christine Pelisek. Uh, once she get kind of got wind of the investigation and the task force, um, she the paper kind of dubbed him as the Grim Sleeper because of the gap from 1988 to 2003. They figured he was not active. It's just that we didn't know. Later on, we did make cases during that time period. But in talking about Dennis and the 85 cases and being used by the same 25 caliber uh, automatic, the cases from 2003, which was Princess Bertha Mew, there was one in 2005. I can't remember her name offhand. But uh, and then 2007 with Janisha Peters were strangulation murders. So they did not fit the same MO as the 85 series. It was when we started biopsying the cases, like Dennis says, then going back to those old cases and pulling out all the evidence to see what technologies could be used in 2007, 2008 that they didn't have in 85, which was DNA. Then we started linking those cases through DNA to the cases that were linked by ballistics back in the 80s and uh, so getting back to answering your question it was Christine Palasek and the LA Weekly that dubbed him the Grim Sleeper I don't think we would have picked that name but it kind of stuck just in total before we kind of get into the innovative things you all use to try to solve this case 
How many total victims do you think that Mr. Franklin, quote unquote, the grim sleeper, how many are known and how many were presumed uh, that he was responsible for? Well, there, there were 10 murders that he was actually filed on, charged with, and convicted on. Um, there were three other young ladies that were missing um, after his arrest, and we knew who he was, and we started checking other cases. I think we made three or four more on uh, DNA that, that linked to him. Um, as far as how many other ones there are, he was a trash collector. Some of his victims were in dumpsters in the area of his route, and uh, they probably ended up in landfills. So we may never know exactly how many he was uh, responsible for. Fair to say one of the most notorious serial killers in LA County? Uh, I would say so, yes. One of the things that, um, you know, Paul and Dennis, maybe Dennis, I'll direct this to you, is, you know, there's this thing called a clue management system that I, I remember learning about when you all were teaching in the advanced homicide class. And maybe just tell us what was that and how was that used in the Grim Sleeper case? We wrote under the radar purposely uh, without going public with the information for approximately a year. And that was, uh, it's quite a challenge to reinvestigate, you know, dozens upon dozens of additional cases, learn them, uh, have the lab work done, redone for the older cases. Uh, and it's very time consuming. And then, uh, so, and at the same time, we don't want to chase the guy away. And uh, it's, uh, it, it caused some conflict later that we did not go public later i would do the same again today um however one of the once it became public information which is late summer of 2008 this uh, same writer that dubbed it the grim sleeper she wrote a quite a lengthy article in a an alternate newspaper in los angeles the la weekly and uh when it when that came out it exploded uh, because the emphasis of the article was uh, the mean old LAPD and the black community and uh, not, uh, you're not sharing information, not warning people, you know, and just painting the police department in a terrible light. Um, so this became instantly a national media event at, uh, on this case. So, we immediately went uh, public with some of the information, not all of it, but some of the information regarding the case and uh, pretty much challenged, okay, the public wants the information, wants to solve this case for us. Well, by gosh, we're gonna do that. And uh, here we go. So as soon as you go public with the case, the, the phones start ringing and you're starting a, an influx of information. Um, most of it's, you know, armchair detectives and just people meaning well, but uh, really the information is useless, but it needs to be looked at. So we employed the uh, 
a system, a computerized system called Clue Management that had been started during the O.J. Simpson case. And it was pretty crude back then because I think the O.J. Simpson case was the first time that the, our office actually had a computer to input information. And that, that was in 90, it started in uh, 94, June of 94. So we, the system had been improved a little bit along the way. Uh, Paul took charge of that and uh, improved it significantly uh, for our purposes. And basically it's a computerized uh, filing system where you take the information from some, a caller or an information developed by the detectives and it's uh, input into the computer and certain uh, items are highlighted that should connect with other clues. So when you have thousands of clues in there, you know, you can't humanly re remember, you know, clue number three matches clue number 1302. It's uh, the computer does it for you and hopefully it's going to point you in the right direction. Now this system, as I mentioned before, started with the Simpson case in a pretty crude fashion, but it basically uh, was the same thing uh, because that had developed as we became, got into the computerized uh, age of policing and uh, tracking information. It's, uh, if you step back a little further in time to uh, cases that were of significance and media-driven cases in the in Los Angeles. If you go back to say the the Hillside Strangler case back in the late 70s, you had a couple of guys that were murdering uh, young ladies. Most of them were involved in prostitution. Uh, they were picking them up, and it turns out they're posing as police officers. They pick them up, strangle them and uh, then pose their bodies around the city, mostly up in Griffith Park area. And they, they, they were pretty uh, ruthless too, that they killed about a dozen young ladies, I believe. Anyways, in those days, the clue system was basically recipe index cards and the information was cataloged and kept in shoe boxes. So going back in time, a biopsy on, uh, kind of an act after actions uh, search of that system showed that one of the suspects, Kenneth Bianchi in the Hillside Strangler case was actually in those shoe boxes seven different times. He, he was even an applicant to be a reserve police officer with the police department. So now we move forward to uh, the Simpson case and then our case. And we again, biopsy things with the uh, Grim Sleeper case. And Franklin, there was a little bit of information in there, but nothing that would be comfortably, that we would be comfortable in saying that without DNA, we would have, we would have got to him anyway. However, conversely, in 96, when uh, Bill Cosby's son, Ennis, was murdered, the clue management system there wasn't the cause of uh actually i take that back it was the cause of uh solving that case because the the suspect marcusef was his name he there was information in in the, the uh clue management system a couple of different times 
that would probably eventually lead us to uh, solving that and arresting him. But ultimately, that case was solved on two particular clues that came in that were linked and involved some other people. And after interviews with the other people, led us to that, uh, that suspect. So now we're into uh, the Grim Sleeper clue management system. And Paul took it upon himself, which was a great idea, to, at the time of the arrests in July of uh, 2010, we made the arrest. So he stopped that clue management system for the investigative clue management system. And he started a post-arrest uh, system up again. So the calls that came in, because we knew that once he became known and it became public who he was and what he was doing, we knew from experience that we were going to start getting calls about people that knew something about him, knew him or other people that uh, he may have victimized other family members and such as that, which did occur. We, I mean, to this day, there's still calls coming into the office from uh, people that think there's a connection. And, and we made uh, officially 18 cases to him, charged him with, I believe, 10, and, 10 murders, one uh, attempt murder that he was convicted on. And then there was, uh, I would say that he is probably in the 30s as to the number of women that he murdered. But also, also going back um, to the after uh, post-arrest information, we found another victim from 1985 May that predated the first known homicide of Deborah Jackson in August of 85. So like Dennis says, you know, it, it's just a way of separating the post-arrest clues and information and not commingling it with information that we had before. You know, the clue management system, like Dennis says, we had to learn 10 other cases or 11 with the, uh, uh, the male victim. And we were able to input suspect information from those cases to make sure that they didn't show up in two different cases or witness information that it would link up if it was like, oh, here's one on this victim's case and now it's over on this victim's case. Who is this guy? And if they had suspects that they looked at back in the 80s, we could check to see if they were in CODIS. If not, we would go out and get a swab from them to enter them there to have them compared to our unknown suspect profile. Just knowing the two of you, um, and what was done in this particular case, it seems clear to me that this method, this clue management system has become a model for law enforcement, really, and you two have taught it across the state in terms of what you do when you have a, a case this complex and really a case this, of this magnitude. And it's, it's really been an extraordinary tool, not, not only that you used in this case, but also uh, moving forward for, for other law enforcement agencies in California. I mean, is that a fair statement? I, I think it is because what, what happened is once we got the information on Lonnie Franklin, one of the first things we did after uh, running his record, making sure he wasn't in CODIS already, was to go back to that clue management system and see if his name popped up anywhere in any of the prior clues from the 80s or the later cases in the 2000s. And he was not in there. 
not at all. His son was not in there who uh, got entered into CODIS after arrest in 2009, I believe it was, in Inglewood for a gun case. And he pled guilty, which made him a convicted felon, although he never spent a day in state prison. He was labeled a convicted felon and had to provide a DNA sample, which went into CODIS. And that was from the familial hit that uh, we identified Lonnie. Okay, let me, let me, um, we're going to get to the familial stuff, but that's a critical piece of that, Paul. So let me, let me move to the one of the, what I think is one of the other significant innovative things you all did to try to solve this case. <clears throat> and I'll, I'll ask you about it, Paul. And, um, you know, in your effort, and these women, the majority were sexually assaulted and murdered, was there an effort undertaken? to try to collect DNA from other sex offenders within the city of Los Angeles. And, and how did that play out? Well, through the clues that were coming in, some of them you'd have to prioritize. Dennis mentioned some of them, you know, they were just information from armchair detectives that meant well, but they really didn't have any substance to them. But there were some that looked pretty good. And uh, what we would do is put surveillance on them to get the throwaway DNA or discarded DNA so that we could uh, compare it to our unknown profile. One individual, when we uh, wanted to get his swab, he got an attorney. We put surveillance on him. He was going to all the areas where street prostitution was going on in Pomona and Long Beach and in L.A. And we thought, man, this guy looks pretty good. And uh, once we got his throwaway DNA, and compared it, he was not our guy. And we were doing that. We must have done that from anywhere from 75 to 100 individuals had surveillance and get throwaway DNA. And it just wasn't working out. We, we were striking out every time. We had the trick task forces that were going on in South Central Los Angeles. And uh, anybody who is in our age range of the suspect that we would pro probably be looking for, we would have them get voluntary uh, swabs from them so we could compare it to our unknown profile. And uh, we were striking out with that. Um, one of the things that I thought was the greatest idea that I've, I've seen as far as things that were done was Diane Webb was in charge of our um, sex registrants for the city of Los Angeles. And she went through and she had a list of, uh, they call it uh, out of compliance sex registrants. And a lot of those were people that were arrested prior to CODIS or the DNA data bank. They had done their time in prison, been released, uh, and were not in the, in the data bank. One of those individuals was a guy named John Floyd Thomas. He was arrested in the city of Pasadena for a home invasion burglary, uh, sexual assault, did his time in prison in the 60s, 70s, was released on parole. And when uh, Diane's team went and collected a DNA sample for him, he would show up every year like he was supposed to at the local police department and provide his address like he was required to do but he was never swabbed for DNA. Diane had her team go out, get a swab for him. It got entered into CODIS and he got made to seven other homicides from the seventies and eighties. And we were getting congratulatory calls from people going, Hey, you got your guy. And we go, 
no, it ain't our guy. It's another guy, but it's not our guy. And so he was convicted, I believe it was for seven other homicides in the city of LA, mid Wilshire area, Claremont, Lennox, Inglewood, and the area and was convicted or pled guilty without ever going to trial. So, I mean, that was just stuff that we don't know. And you know, uh, Anne-Marie from doing the Dead Inmate Project, when we went back to inmates that died in prison prior to CODIS, and we would get samples uh, from evidence that had been collected and were still in our uh, property or evidence rooms, that we went back and had them check for DNA and made sure their stuff was entered into Dakota. So one of those cases from L.A. County, L.A. City, I think was one of Dennis's cases from Hollywood we made. The guy had been collect, uh, been arrested on a, uh, a homosexual murder, went to prison, and then committed suicide a year or so later. But we were able to get the evidence from that case, get his DNA, enter it into CODIS, and we made another case in the Hollywood area. Uh, that. Yeah, I think what to me what was fascinating about this particular case was that we're really the the effort made to identify the grim sleeper by going out and collecting samples from sex offenders who never gave their DNA. And in the what you're telling us, Paul, is that in the course of trying to solve the grim sleeper, you all solved a completely separate serial killing case in, in Los Angeles County. I mean, it's it's really quite extraordinary what was done. And um, it brought some justice to other folks um, that wasn't at the intended initial, but it ultimately was, it was an incredible outcome. In this no, and, and, and originally when that was, we were getting frustrated at the end because all these things that we were doing and we just were striking out left and right. And Jill is the, um, she's the expert here. And Paul, you, you and Dennis are very familiar with this term called CODIS. And you kind of reference databank and, and Jill, maybe first kind of give us a little bit of basics of, you know, what is CODIS? What does it mean? And then how did this idea of what we call familial searching even emerge in the Grim Sleeper case? So CODIS stands for Combined DNA Index System. It is a, a way of uploading all felons and arrestees, uh, their DNA swabs from their mouth. Um, into the databank, and then it's searched and compared to all the question evidence samples, such as blood, semen, saliva, and you look for hits. So that would be a direct match with the felony arrestee sample or the evidence sample. So I become a uh, chief, uh, bureau chief for California De uh, Department of Justice in about May, June of 2008. The previous chief, Lance Gima, had always had this thought of doing familial search. Familial search is using the databank in a way of finding relatives. So for example, uh, you have a semen evidence sample, you query it against the databank, and you look for not a direct match, but you look for a match where they share similar genetic um, markers. And you also look for not only how many markers they're sharing, but also the rare markers. And we get a candidate pool of approximately 200 people. Then we would go back and we would run male DNA and compare that male DNA to the evidence sample. Because remember your male DNA is inherited 
through the patrilineal line or your father's line. So anyone whose grandfather, father, son will have the same male DNA. So we, we knew just from doing other cases that when you're doing a molestation case, when you're doing other cases, that you can see that DNA is shared, obviously, right? We all know that. We have our mother and father's DNA. So the, the previous chief, Lance Gima, had wanted to do familial searching. One of, the, one of the issues with it legally is that the convicted felon is not in there to find a, a family member. So it was very controversial at the time as to whether or not we could do it. So I became chief in May of 2008. Um, actually, Dennis and Paul fly up to Sacramento to meet for lunch because they've exhausted all of their clues, so to speak, of what of how they're going to solve this case. Amory, you were there also. I think Amory, you might have been the one that got all of us together at this meeting because you knew Dennis and Paul from teaching different classes. Yeah, I think so they met they were, for lunch. Right. So they were very interested in familial searching. So we decided. And Jill, Jill to, let me inter, let me interrupt for one second uh -huh. and just to to clarify, and, and you know this, but familial search it searching is is different than genetic genealogy because familial searching is looking specifically and only at the convicted offender databank, which is housed by the Department of Justice. Fair statement. Right. So we so we meet with we meet with Dennis and Paul. They're interested in familial searching. We go to Jerry Brown, who was the attorney general at the time, and we decide that we will start a familial searching program. We will search on convicted offenders, but we will not search on arrestees, right? Because they are not convicted offenders. Dennis and Paul are getting a lot of heat from the press, the LAPD, and just in general is getting a lot of heat from the press to solve these cases. They've exhausted every other possibility. So we start our uh, familial searching um, program, but we first have to develop the software. So the brilliant scientists at Cal DOJ in Richmond developed the software. And by that, I mean the software to search not for a direct um, exact DNA profile hit to hit, but one that shares genetic markers. Then we have to validate the we have to validate the software, meaning that we have to run lots of different tests to make sure it works. And we also have to develop policy and procedures. So we only decided we would search convicted offenders, and that's very important. We did not search on arrestees. It had to it had to be a violent crime. All leads had to be exhausted. And so we developed our policy, developed our procedures. In the meantime, between May and October, we're getting a lot. This of, is 2008, correct? Of 2008. We're getting a lot of heat to hurry up and get this program going, right? Because the, the community wants the Grim Sleeper case solved. So um, we finally get everything done in October 2008. And Everything's validated. All the policy and procedures are written. We formed a familial search committee, which contained the scientists um, at Richmond, myself. We had a, a deputy attorney general on the committee. Um, and so we met regularly at least once a month. The, com the committee did once we started doing the familial searches, as well as um, prior to that, developing the program. 
Now, back in 2008, each familial search cost $40,000. We could only do it on overtime. So, and I was not given any extra money in my budget to do this. So I had to find different ways in order to do this, this familial searching. I could not use grants because they're federal grants and they don't allow that. So I had to cut other things in order to do the familial search program, but I felt it was very important to solve these cases. So the Grim Sleeper case is the first search that we did in October 2008, and we got no hits. Can I ask, was it the first search, as far as you know, in the country or in California? I mean, had familial search been done throughout the country? Uh, Familial search had been done in one other state, so it was the first one in, in California. Okay. And so unfortunately there were no hits in October of 2008. So I had to let Dennis and Paul know that there were no hits. So, um, October, 2008 goes by, then it's October, 2009. And at that time I had told Dennis and Paul, you need to send me a letter because that was per our procedure that we would search again in a year, because what happens in a year? Well, those arrestee samples are turned to convicted felons. And then other convicted felons are brought into the databank. So we started another search. And and in the meantime, what's kind of interesting is every month I had a meeting to go to down in L.A. that I had to attend and I would fly down. Um, I would park my car at the City of Angels Church. Um, Dennis, um, would meet me and we would go to breakfast. So we would talk about the case, what we can do with the case, any, any other things that they could do DNA wise, um, and, and just discuss the case. So, uh, October, 2009, November, 2009, I told Dennis and Paul, you need to give me a letter that says we can search it again. Our policy was that after a year we would search. So they get the letter, um, And shortly in 2010, um, March 2010, I am at Richmond and I'm at a meeting and I get told by the staff to come into, we had a theater at the Richmond Laboratory. The Richmond Laboratory is housed in the old Pixar studios. So we actually had a theater, which was great for having meetings because it held a lot of people. So I'm told to come in the theater and to sit down and they've told me that they have our first familial search. And I said, which case is it? Because remember, we're doing a familial search a month. We're doing one a month. That's pretty much all we can afford at 40,000 a month. And we're doing it all on overtime. And they tell me it's, it is to the grim sleeper. So, um, I, I was floored. I was excited. So part of our, our policy next was we as a familial search committee had to get together and decide whether we were going to hand over the name of the convicted felon to our uh, Bureau of Investigation to do what we call a metadata search, which is a computer search. They were not allowed to go out and collect samples. They were not allowed to knock on any doors and talk to anyone. LAPD has no idea. I have not told Dennis and Paul, but remember, I'm still going down there every month to, to my meeting. I have to go in LA and I've seen Dennis a couple times and I cannot tell him anything. So end of June, we're getting where it's going to be 4th of July weekend. I made the decision. The 
Bureau of Investigation was done with their metadata search that I did not want to hold this information until after 4th of July weekend because I was afraid that he would be trolling for other women and possibly killing other women. So here we are. Um, it's end of June, I'm supposed to go back down, meet Dennis for breakfast. And um, Dennis, do you want to take it over from there? Late June, we jumped forward to late June and uh, the end of June, actually. And uh, Jill calls me uh, and we, everyone is aware that this is a, this is a highly confidential or controversial, highly controversial. Uh, it's a novel procedure, right? right? It, it, new and everybody's a little nervous about it and because um and basically it's because we are investigating looking to investigate someone a relative of our suspect so you got your suspect our main crook and you're looking for a male family member that has done nothing and we are investigating that family member and that's the controversy is we are invading the so the so-called invading the privacy of someone that is not under investigation for anything jill calls me on a wednesday afternoon and this is the wednesday just prior to fourth of july weekend and she calls me and tells instructs me uh that she's not coming down the following day for our monthly breakfast meeting and this this particular meeting was going to be with the chief of police as well so uh she calls and she says, uh, I'm not going to be down there tomorrow. Please tell Charlie, who Charlie is the chief of police. Jill and Charlie are on first name basis, not Dennis. So anyway, so then uh, we go to, uh, then she says, uh, reschedule the breakfast for Friday morning. And uh, Friday morning, I can, uh, I'm going to fly down there. We're going to have uh, a meeting. I need you to put... Uh, I need you to have the chief of police there, the district attorney there, the uh, lab director with LAPD there, all of these things. And uh, obviously Jill doesn't know how bureaucratic things are in Los Angeles. It's uh, There's a few layers of fat between Dennis and the chief of police and Dennis and the district attorney, et cetera. So anyway, as I said, you got to tell me what's going on. She says, uh, I can't tell you. I said, well, you got to tell me something. So she said, well, I'm going to bring you good news. I said, okay, what's the good news? And I, I'm oblivious at the, at the time because I'm still thinking about missing breakfast. So anyway, so she says, well, you're going to be happy. You need to go somewhere and talk to me in private because no one else can know what we're talking about. And I'm thinking, this is getting good. So then uh, she, I go to another phone in another part of the office, and uh, she says, I'm bringing you good news. I can't tell you anymore, and uh, you're going to be very happy. I said, did we get a hit? I can't tell you. Did we get this? I can't tell you. Did we do this? I can't tell you. Because the agreement, the MOU that we have between the Los Angeles Police Department and the state of California Department of Justice is very specific. There is no, uh, no room for any uh, outside the box conversation. So Friday rolls around. She comes down and she's got a, an army of people with her uh, from the attorney general's office. And uh, 
Then we go to a meeting that has a representative, a high ranking representative from the district attorney's office. The chief of police is with me, uh, Jill, myself, and a whole slew of other people, lab people that are on the teleprompters. And uh, they, she, Jill provides me with the information of a, uh, the father of the person that they got a hit on. And the, the, this man, Lonnie Franklin Jr., is uh, a prime candidate of, to be our, our suspect. And there was a slight hit. I'm not quite understand how that happened, but there was another guy by the name of Franklin that lived out Riverside County way. Dennis and I are sitting next to each other and I slide the letter over, which has the name of Lonnie Franklin's son, who within that year, between 2008 and 2009, had been convicted of a felony of a gun charge and put into the data bank. So the hit was actually to Lonnie Franklin's son, who was in the data bank on a felony gun charge. So the name that it would appear on the letter would be Lonnie Franklin's son. And then it's up to Dennis and his detectives to determine if Lonnie Franklin is involved. So as Dennis and I are sitting there, I push over the piece of paper, the memo signed by myself and the Bureau of, of Investigation Chief and with the name of Lonnie Franklin's son on it. This information, um, and I'm told how Department of Justice, this is the first time I'm, I'm hearing this, by the way. And... Uh, so this information is uh, passed to me th that focuses on uh, Franklin's father, Lonnie Franklin Jr. And the first thing, uh, and I know that this has been checked and all kinds of computerized work done by uh, Department of Justice investigators, but I call Paul and tell him, here's the name of somebody I want to uh, do all kinds of quick checks on this guy, make sure that he wasn't in custody and uh, during any of our murders and, uh, you know, a number of other things. And it turns out he lives and had lived for decades right in the center of our uh, investigation. Right. And uh, so Paul does this. By the time I get back to the office within an hour, Paul Paul has checked him out. Everything lines up. And within two hours, we've got 24 surveillance detectives. Uh, this Now, this is Friday, of the beginning of 4th of July weekend. And they are, 24 detectives are set up on Lonnie Franklin. And there is round-the-clock surveillance on him until we arrest him the following week. So let me just take to... Once you get the name, the Lonnie Franklin, you put the surveillance teams on him. Um, I'm assuming based upon just my own experiences, you have to get what's called a surreptitious or an abandoned DNA sample. You know, how did you do that? How were you able to get another sample for him to confirm that in fact, Lonnie Franklin was the grim sleeper? Like Dennis says, we're on him for 20, uh, 24 hours. He'd worked 12 hour shifts on him. And it was on the 5th of July, Lonnie Franklin went to a a kid's birthday pizza party down in Buena Park at John's Incredible Pizzas down near Knott's Berry Farm. And one of the surveillance guys had the brilliant idea. I had never thought to do this myself, but 
he went in, talked to the manager, identified himself as an LAPD officer. So they were working a case, couldn't tell him what it was, got his little John's Incredible pizza hat and an apron and became the busboy of this pizza party. It was like in a little private room off where all the arcade games were. And it just so happens they had security cameras up in that little uh, room. And the whole time you could watch our undercover officer busting that whole party. And every time Lonnie would discard a, a fork, a napkin, a piece of pizza, or whatever, our guy was there to collect it. Once he collected all of that stuff and the party was over, they brought it straight downtown where I inventoried the evidence that he had collected and Dennis took it straight to the lab so that they could analyze it. And it is true that they did get DNA off the pizza. The primary uh, source of DNA was off the napkins that he used the silverware was useless because you'd be surprised how many different profiles you can get off of a restaurant silverware. But that's where we got the, uh, the match. We waited. Uh, that was on the fifth. We waited till the morning of the seventh. I had prepared a combination Ramey arrest warrant search warrant for his residence and his mother-in-law's residence. And we were waiting on the 7th of the morning. I'm in sitting in front of the judge's house, waiting on the information, whether that's our guy or it's not our guy. Once Dennis called and said the lab called him and notified that it was a match, the uh, Judge Pounder signed our warrants. And within two hours, our surveillance team took him into custody there at his residence. He gets arrested. My understanding is he's charged with 10 murders and attempted murder. And then the case is assigned for obviously prosecution. And am I, am I correct that it took about six years to get him all the way through a trial? Six correct. years, exactly, yes. And then in, in 2016, he was convicted of 10 murders and attempted murders, even though you, you all suspect not just by his M.O., but also by evidence that he was responsible for many more murders. Well, there were during the gap, so-called, when he wasn't active, you know, and going back, we did make the other cases. Like I said earlier, we did find another surviving victim from uh, prior to the cases that we knew. And a decision was made that if he would tell us about all of his victims, that we would not seek the death penalty. But he did not want to do that. and. Uh, and the other cases, as you know, once you file those new cases, your clock starts all over again as right. far as prosecution. So we figured uh, there was already 10 cases filed and the one attempt murder. Um, so it served no real purpose to file those additional cases. During the uh, sentencing, those family members were able to come in and address the court about their their family members that were killed, but they were not, he was not, not charged. actually charged. So right. to, just to kind of wrap it up, he gets convicted of those cases. And then he, am I accurate that he um, died uh, in prison in March of about March of 2020, right? He died in San Quentin, yes, of death row. Okay, so I just want to kind of encapsulate kind of the 
the, th the three things that at least I consider incredibly innovative that, that either were done in this case or, or even came out of this case. And uh, just to recap or, re, you know, re-clarify, first is this incredible clue management system that was, you know, brought us into the 21st century and now is being used. The second is this amazing project to collect DNA from, from other convicted sex offenders that while it didn't solve the Grim Sleeper case, it solved completely separate serial killing case. And then third is this amazing tool, you know, that that started really what I would call a revolution of moving cases forward, which is, you know, from from Jill and Lance Gima, this familial search program. And that's just to me to wrap that all up. This is the amazing thing that came out of the case. And so what I really want to do is kind of end this, uh, what I hope is a very interesting podcast with kind of you know, from, from each of you, I'll ask each of you, like, what do you think stood out the most? I mean, we're talking about human beings that were killed, entire communities that were impacted. Um, and just kind of from a personal perspective, maybe I'll start with you, Dennis, what do you think was what stood out the most in this case to you? Well, one of the things that, uh, you know, the supervisor of the task force, uh, you know, I, I ended up uh, spending a lot of my time dealing with the media, the families, and the information flow coming from the police department to the community. And I, I learned a lot. Uh, kind of, it, it's families, everyone grieves differently. And when, when there's a, uh, a person that's lost in that family for, from whatever means, the natural human thing is to to reach out and to, uh, you know, point your anger at somebody, your frustrations, whatever. And that's the police department. You're the, you're the, the go-to person for that. A lot of the family members, because of the racial interaction with the police departments over decades and, de you know, not just Los Angeles, but everywhere, even today, it's, uh, it's, it's a raw, it's a raw, uh, point with people. And, uh, and when you don't have the answer and you can't provide the answer, it, it frustrates them even more. Uh, one of the things that the family members to this day have a tough time with is that we did not tell them that their daughters were uh, the victim of a serial killer. That one, one of the mothers told me during the court trial that her frustration was that maybe that they would have reached out more pressured the department, the public, whatever, and maybe save some other, uh, some other lives. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where her thought process is. On the, from our standpoint, we did not share the information for the first year for investigative reasons. We want to catch this guy. And, uh, and granted, looking back, we, we should have reached out to those families immediately when we reopened the books from all of those years prior. Uh, one of the things that uh, innovation has brought to uh, this process is that the almost more callousness. So we, I, I've seen cold case units get some type of a DNA or a fingerprint hit or something on decades old cases. They reach out to the investigators, reach out to the families and then uh, say, hey, we've got a little tip. We're going to investigate. Da, da, da. So the families get all 
all excited that, well, maybe old Uncle Bob's case is finally going to get solved, you know, 30 years later. But then they don't hear back from the investigators after the, the tip fizzles out. How about you, Paul? You know, as Dennis took my uh, little thing there, it was the families and uh, dealing with the families. Like, like Dennis said, when we first started doing it, they would vent on us and we would go to meetings with them and they would just, they would just chew us out left and right and it was like well we didn't work on these cases in the 80s i mean it's uh, i understand but by the end by all the things that we had done and being in touch with the family members and the final once that verdict came in by then we were very close with all those families when we made the arrest uh, of lonnie franklin that day we stood up in the chief's conference room that was packed with family members of all, I mean, of all, whatever, cousins, sisters, brothers, mothers, fathers. And when they announced it, I mean, it was hard to hold back from tears just because of, you know, here they had thought nobody gave it about their, uh, their daughters and, uh, you know, we'd been working. I mean, maybe they didn't realize how much we'd been working, but that just showed to them and, and to us, I mean, the humanity of it all, what it meant to them all those years later, that maybe somebody was doing something. And it was the same thing after the conviction. And um, I think that's what it brought home to me. So we were able through, like you say, all this new technology and the, and the familial search that uh, Jill and her teams came up with that we were able to bring them, um, not closure, but resolution to uh, their daughter. Jill, how about you if you wrap it up for us? Okay, so so for, for us at Cal DOJ and for myself, um, I think it was the familial search and all of the work that went into validating that, um, all of the incredible work that was done um, by, the, by the scientists. And it really was brilliant work to create that software. And to know that we, we did it in such a way that even the LA Times and the ACLU said that it was done correctly, correctly and appropriately. Um, we didn't search on arrestees. We only searched on, on convicted felons. And knowing that we actually solved a case that was probably the most notorious serial killer in, in California. Um, you just, it, it, was a, it was a very stressful time um, during all of this when the weekend of 4th of July and during the search and all of that. But in the end, it was it was a wonderful feeling to know that you helped solve a, a crime that hopefully other families won't ever have to go through again. Excellent. Well, I just know for myself, you know, being involved in DNA for so many years that um, this case really changed the face of forensic science. And it, it really did change the face of how we solve cases, not just here in California, but really across California. So I just wanna thank you all for your time and your innovation. And uh, I just want to thank the listeners for listening to Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. Thank you, guys.
I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Subscribe at InsideCrimeFiles.com.